0: Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Since the beginning of time, even after domestication of animals, hunting has been a critical part of every culture. It was necessary for survival, for food, clothing, tools, and so on. Like in America, when Native Americans occupied our country, hunting deer and buffalo and birds was key to survival. Hunting was a revered skill and provided clothing, tools, and food for the tribe or clan. Even when the settlers landed in America, hunting was a necessary part of everyone's life. And this was the case until the mid-20th century when urbanization and culture changes and the mass production of beef, chicken, and pork ultimately resulted in a division between hunters, gun owners, and non-gun owners. In Central Africa, where the villager lives off the land, relying on corn and manioc grown in the garden for his or her main sustenance, Having a hunter or trapper in the family to bring home some meat was a special treat. In the mid-20th century, wildlife and big game were very prevalent in our area of northwest Congo. Often a day hunt on foot would result in an antelope or buffalo or other big game. If the picture is forming in your head of being on a safari touring a game preserve in Kenya where thousands of wildebeest, antelope, elephants, giraffes, buffalo, and other animals are roaming, This wasn't the case where I was in Congo. There were animals, just not too many, and they were very elusive. They were not standing on the Masai Mara game preserve where you can drive up 10 yards away in your tourist van. In the 1970s and 1980s, one actually had to drive a ways to a drop-off point to then start a hunt for bigger game, and this was due to population growth and wildlife scarcity. The game was very wary of humans, and was very smart and very difficult to shoot. Also, the fact that if something moved in the forest, the African would shoot it to eat it. So as a kid growing up in Central Africa, hunting and guns and killing birds and animals to eat was a part of everyday life. The area was ideal, having a mix of grassland areas and thick jungle. It's part of the Congolese culture, and as a kid who grew up in that culture, the environment for natural wildlife that lived in the grasslands and jungles of Central Africa, hunting was a huge part of my upbringing. While this episode will describe the shooting of birds and animals and some hunting stories from various folks, I will say that it will not be done in a graphic or raw manner. But if you're not into guns or hunting, feel free to stop listening. I started my hunting journey when I was about eight. We'd just returned to Congo from a year in the U.S. and a year in Belgium, and my weapon against lizards and small birds was a slingshot. This wasn't a cool wrist rocket with the projectile being a perfectly round ball bearing that you could buy at the store. Rather, this was made by a hand-carved Y-shaped stick from a tree. Remember, I'm eight, wielding a pocket knife here. Then, instead of surgical tubing with a perfectly cut leather pouch for the ball bearing, we'd find some old inner tubing from a bicycle tire and cut it into strips, Tie one end to the top of the Y with more rubber strapping. We'd then find a piece of cloth for the pouch, and then look for the roundest stones we could find for the projectile. Of course, no rocks are perfectly round, so even if your aim was superb, the rock would often spin one direction or another and miss the target. I started shooting lizards. We had geckos that normally came out at night, and also skinks and other bigger lizards we called grandads. They were probably 15 inches in total length, black with some red streaks and white stripes down their back and white heads. The female of this type had a reddish pinkish hue. We called them grandmas. Usually we fed these lizards to our pet du jour, an owl, hawk, or hornbill, and they would eat them up. Occasionally, I'd be lucky enough to get a small bird with my slingshot. I remember getting a robin and quite a few weaver birds. I'd usually give the birds to my African friends who would eat them. Remember, this was the only protein they probably got for the entire week. For Christmas, when I was nine, I got a BB gun. Not a Red Ryder, but a Daisy, I believe. I remember shooting at paper targets that came with it and having my dad give me some basic gun safety instructions. The day after Christmas, I began carrying that gun virtually every minute of every day. I was looking for lizards and looking for birds and even bats. Bats would sleep during the day on the trunks of palm trees that had dead branches hanging down. I'd look straight up the tree trunk and see a little lump that was a bat and try to shoot it. It was a very difficult angle for sure. I got a few though. The BB gun was the only gun in my arsenal until 8th grade. Again, at Christmas, I got a Sheridan pellet gun. It was an air pump gun. Moving up the chain with guns was sort of a rite of passage for boys growing up in Congo. There were three main pellet guns available that folks had. There was a 177 caliber pellet gun. Most were spring-loaded with a brake barrel. This was fine for smaller birds and lizards. There might have been a few pump 177s, but I don't remember. Then there was the Benjamin 22 caliber pellet gun. This was very accurate as the pellet had a very flat head. This made it very effective, and it could take down guinea hen, big birds, and I even heard of an African hunter getting a monkey with a twenty-two caliber pellet gun. Wow! Then there was my Sheridan pellet gun. This shot 5mm conical pellets that were not very accurate. The shape of the pellet did not lend to accuracy. I remember the pellets were in yellow plastic boxes. I think my folks bought it from Brian Lashbau, who'd graduated or gotten another gun or something. So it was indeed second generation, but it was mine. Again, almost every moment of every vacation when I wasn't doing something else, I had that gun in my hand looking for stuff to shoot. Unfortunately, I lived on a school campus with open areas, but was surrounded by a city of 100,000 people. So I had to be very strategic about where I shot that gun. So if I missed, the pellet would hit a tree or something, or worse, someone. Also, being at the edge of the city didn't offer much of a chance for real hunting per se. If a crow or hawk came and landed in a tree, I'd go see if I could go get a shot. So as I moved into high school, much of my hunting took place at the dorm where I was going to school. I wasn't allowed to bring my pellet gun to school. Usually, Saturdays were hunting days. I'd borrow a twenty two or shotgun for bigger birds like hawks, crows, forest pheasant, guinea fowl, monkeys, and small varmints in the forest. Or I'd borrow a pellet gun for smaller birds and squirrels. Whatever was shot, either I ate it or my African hunting guide or friend ate it. Yes, it was sport, but it was also nutrition and protein for someone. I remember we had birds that would fly around in flocks of several hundred, small finches that ate grass seeds and would land all in the grass at once. For technique, I remember shooting from a distance about two feet above the flock of these little birds. They'd hear the gun go off, all start to lift off the ground, and hopefully the BB or pellet would hit one of them. I think I only succeeded a handful of times using that technique, though when it worked, it was really cool. Spending so much time out looking for birds allowed us to become very familiar with the hundreds of types of birds that were prevalent in the Congo Basin. Back to the flock of finches, or seed eaters, as we called them, I remember sitting with Steve Fairweather one night, counting up the various kinds of seed eaters we had either seen or shot, and I think we counted 19, if my memory serves. So we did become very familiar and knowledgeable about the birds in our area. We could tell the kind of bird by the sound it made, or by the silhouette of it flying against the sky. Often we had people passing through on their Trans-Africa trek, and they'd be into birds and wildlife and have their field guide to African birds with them. We'd tell them all about the birds and animals in our area. We were very knowledgeable. Though we had the field guide to African birds in our school library, very rarely did we call birds by their official names. Often we called the birds by a made-up name that made sense in English. Like the finches, we called them seed eaters. Or we'd use the lingala or nbaka name. Guinea fowl were called kangas. A small type of hornbill was called a kokoya, as they made that type of noise when they were startled. A type of pheasant that hung out on the ground and then in the ball of the palm tree was called a doodoo. Why? Here's their call. <laughs> I got so good calling them, that if I'd flushed one into the ball of a palm tree, after waiting for some time, I would call it, and it would come out looking for me, then BAM! I remember a story where one of the local hunters had such an incredible squirrel call. It sounded like this... Paul Norrin tells how this hunter guide once called a squirrel out of a tree, onto the ground, and ultimately started climbing up his leg. Can you believe that? Another trick was to shoot a crow during the day. Then, around dusk, all the crows in my town would fly back from the gardens that they had been raiding all day and roost for the night in a huge tree a few miles from my house. Their flight path brought these hundreds of crows right over our yard. Well, I'd take the dead crow from earlier in the day and prop it up in the middle of the field using sticks. These crows would see their fellow crow, and sensing something was amiss, would come down to its aid. They'd be landing all over on every tree, cawing and cawing like crazy, trying to get their buddy to come with them, or wondering what was wrong. Well, I'd be hiding in the tall grass or behind a tree, and so it was easy pickings. I don't feel bad for these crows, as they were messy, annoying, and caused lots of crop damage to the Congolese's gardens. Another big target was hawks. These were really black kites, as per the field guide. Big brown hawks with four foot or longer wingspans that would circle around all day looking for prey. Usually, they'd sweep down and carry off the baby chicks or ducklings in the villages, so they were hated for that. Occasionally, they'd land, and when they did, they were a target. It's kind of ironic in that though I shot hundreds of birds, I also took care of numerous injured birds that we had chanced upon, or the local Congolese would sell us if they'd caught them or they were injured. We had baby hawks, falcons, owls, hornbills, and a host of other birds that we'd feed and nurse back to health and ultimately release back into the wild. If you listen to episode 12 on my website, you can hear all about the various pets we had. Not sure how, on one hand, I had no problem shooting certain birds and eating them, and others I'd spend hours looking for lizards or other things to feed my pet owl or pet hawk so it could grow and be released back into the wild. In another twist of irony, it was in 1991 that I started volunteering for a local bird of prey rehabilitation organization called the Orange County Bird of Prey Center. We take in several hundred injured or baby birds every year, and rehabilitate them and release them back into the wild. So now I'm a huge proponent of protecting birds of prey, yet as a kid I'd shoot a Congo hawk or falcon in a second. Go figure. I missed out on a few chances to go buffalo hunting, but I did hunt monkeys quite a few times in the last years I was in Congo. Monkeys were very elusive and very smart. They had to be to survive. The Africans hated the monkeys, as they would destroy their gardens and eat their meager crops. So they welcomed us when we went to hunt them in their garden areas. To give you an example of how hard it was to get a monkey, it was Christmas of 1989, and my brother Peter and I went out four days in a row. We'd drive a motorcycle way out to a village at O Dark 30, park it there, then hoof it all morning. In four hunts, we each got off one shot with the shotgun. Peter missed his, and I got mine. And yes, he was yummy. The meat is very tough, so it needs to be boiled for several hours to soften it up, but with the right amount of salt, peppers, palm oil, and pounded peanuts, it's fantastic. Another interesting cultural thing is how the Congolese men duped the women, such that they could hoard the monkey meat all for themselves when they returned to the village. They told the women that if women ate it, their children would be born looking like monkeys. Therefore, no woman would ever want to touch and eat monkey meat. If you came up to a troop of monkeys, normally they'd have scouts or sentries on the perimeter, and these would warn the others of human presence. One technique was to let them settle down after they'd run aways. Then slowly and quietly make your way up to about 20 yards from the tree that they were hiding in. Position yourself so that you can see the main branches of this big tree against the sky in the background. Wait for about 10 minutes and don't move be very quiet. Then sure enough, the monkey or monkeys will very slowly and quietly make their way on the branch to try to leave and slip away. You'll see the movement against the horizon and be able to get your shot off. If you miss, they'll all scatter and you'll never get another shot as they move way faster through the tree canopy than you can on the jungle floor. No doubt, if you're still listening and are not a hunter, you're wondering how anyone can shoot a cute little monkey. You're probably thinking about the one you saw at the zoo and think they're harmless or how they're portrayed in kids' books or whatever. Au contraire, monkeys were the nemesis to the African survival. I've asked John Lundquist, a childhood friend who's a few years older than me, but was an avid hunter in high school and currently lives in the Minneapolis area, to share his experiences with monkeys in Congo.
1: And the monkeys at Goyonga would come down out of the trees into the Africans' corn gardens. And for your listeners who don't know, there were no stores out there. These people grew their food or hunted it or trapped it or caught it as fish or something. But there were no stores. If you want to not starve to death, you plant your garden and you save the seeds that you need to plant next year and you eat the rest. And that's what gets you through dry season or not. And these monkeys would come down out of the trees and go through a corn garden and just ravage it. They'd break down stalks left and right, left and right, just leave destruction. And this was serious for these poor people. So that tempered my feelings about shooting monkeys
0: I've also asked Dan Noren, a childhood friend of mine, who is a college professor at a state university in Michigan that I often hunted with in high school to share his strategy for monkey hunting.
2: Monkey hunting, people think, oh, monkeys, they think of a zoo, you know, just a big stupid monkey. No, monkeys are very smart because they hunt them, right? So, And monkeys are just, you know, not quite as smart as humans, right? And if you think about it, they're very smart animals. And so you have to walk on a path that has leaves mostly and ideally wet leaves and you can just walk along real slowly when you hear them ahead of you and you don't go very fast at all and you start looking and you look and you look and they have scouts like you said but you look for a little movement and then you freeze and sometimes you crouch way down and get behind some bushes that they can't see you and then hopefully one of them is going to come running out and you you can take a shot but I'm telling you one time I went hunting up from Boomba and we went through 10 troops of monkeys and I didn't get one shot off because every time, no matter what we did, they always saw us before we saw them. And they were smart to hunters and they just disappeared just and jumped off into the other trees, you know, 20 miles an hour. You can't keep up with
0: them. Another big hunter that I knew growing up was Bob Widman. Bob was a missionary bush pilot in Alaska for 35 years. Bob shares about his experiences.
3: Well, I think the reason that they're hard to hunt is they can run in packs, or depending on the monkeys, they can run more as as single monkeys, but they're very wary. Uh, They're very aware of sound and movement. Uh, They have fairly acute senses. And uh, it took me about a year of hunting before I shot my first monkey, because of how attuned they were to their environment and how aware they were of predators. And... um, as time went on, you, you got a, a sense of how to hunt them, but one of the things that was very essential in my mind was you had to be extremely quiet. One of the things that you needed to know was where the monkeys were and what their environment was. And I liked hunting them with the twenty two the best. And the reason I liked the twenty two was because it had a lot of range. Uh, it had a scope on it, a four-power scope. And it was also quiet. So when you were out hunting in the forest, sometimes wasn't all the time, but occasionally you would hear what the Africans referred to as a poopoo or a muzzleloader go off in the distance, and it'd be sometimes maybe miles away, a couple miles away. You'd hear the gun go off. Well, every animal within the range, hearing range of that, then would be wary and would. Maybe head and hide. Monkeys were that way. And the thing I liked about a 22 is you could shoot a 22, and then walk for 30 minutes, and nothing would be aware of your presence. And uh, a 22 had a lot of range, especially with a scope. It was uh, better than a shotgun. Generally, the the load was a 22 long rifle hollow point. And one of the things that shocked me when I started big game hunting with my dad was how much noise you made. And I thought, really, you can actually hunt like this and and get stuff. To me, that was almost a heresy, you know, and then you could, I don't imagine people who aren't used to hunting macaques or monkeys particularly like this, but the element of surprise when you picked your shot, and you got a good shot, the first one, usually a one shot kill. Generally, there would be pandemonium, and the troop couldn't figure out which way to go. Some would go one direction, some would go another, just out of sheer panic. And you got used to picking up how they ran and the line, you know, the line they would run in the branches. And the other, probably their Achilles heel was the curiosity. And usually, they would stop and take a look. And when that happened, If you knew how to hunt them, you could be ready. And as time went on and I hunted monkeys more, I could sometimes shoot one and then get another one or two after the pandemonium, so to speak.
0: The Congolese often hunted with dogs. These were Basenji dogs. They were about 17 inches tall and would weigh a bit over 20 pounds. They actually come from Congo, believe it or not, and the ones with the purest bloodlines have very curly tails and big wrinkles on their forehead. These were excellent hunters, but they couldn't bark. Hence, one would tie a wooden bell around its belly so that you could hear that when the dog was running ahead of you in the jungle while chasing the game. I put a photo of an actual Basenji hunting dog's bell on my website. Check it out. Pretty cool. Dan shares about hunting monkeys with Basenji dogs.
2: The only thing that will stop a monkey is if you bring a Basenji dog along. You bring a dog along and all of a sudden the big monkeys get really mad because they hate dogs and they get stupid. They come down, they get rrr, 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 and they get really mad at the dogs and they stand there on a branch, you know, 40 feet away from the hunter. And then the hunter shoots them. <laughs> you know? so, so if you bring a dog along, it's like hunting bears with dogs. Same thing. It's all awesome. sudden the
0: advantage is totally on the hunter's side because he's got dogs, you know. My brother Peter working in Virginia and working as a forester and an avid hunter to this day, tells about chasing a cane rat with dogs. Cane rats are like a giant weasel. The
2: dogs were running crazy. They have these bells wrapped around them, wooden bells wrapped around the back hindquarters, right around their bellies because Basenji dogs cannot bark. But they're very, very good hunting dogs. And the hunters never to be able to hear where they're going since the dogs can't bark, they follow the noise of these wooden bells or metal bells that are attached to the, around the belly, basically. And so that's how they would track to see where they were chasing these Simblikis or these cane rats, which were very, very large, about the size of a nutria, you might think here in the U.S., down in South Florida area. So that's, that was my first experience.
0: I really enjoyed being out in the forest having the challenge of the hunt, the uncertainty of what we might see, or if we'll hunt all day and come up empty. The joy of being in the jungle or grassland with our African friends was wonderful. We enjoyed bonding with our friends, camaraderie, adventure, being in the heart of Africa, and just being out in part of nature. It was so exhilarating. We'd often find food while we were out in the forest. We'd often drink from a stream if we were thirsty. We learned to be very aware of our surroundings. Learning the sounds of the jungle, of the birds and other animals there was very, very fun. Learning what was edible and what wasn't. John shares more thoughts on this aspect.
1: For me, and I think this is true for you too and for for a number of us, being as well integrated as possible with the Africans around us was tremendously important to me. It was a big goal of mine. And part of that was I wanted to learn what they had to teach me. And especially about things that I was interested in. And I was sure to was interested in the forest. I, and being from Goyongo, which was virtually all forest around us uh, when I was younger, I had, I think, a greater interest in the forest than some people. And maybe also because of my mom's background at the Pacific Northwest. I just loved the forest out there, especially. I love the sobi too, uh, the sword grass. From, oh, the first thing that I remember realizing and starting to deliberately apply myself to was seeing what was there. When I started hunting, I remember uh, one of my siblings or me, somebody, one of us, lost a toy in the grass in our backyard at Goyongo. And an African friend, Was helping us look for it and he found it before I did. I'm guessing, looking back, that it was in an area where I'd already looked and I'd missed it. And I realized he sees this. It was there to see, but he saw it and I didn't. And I want to see that. And then they started to teach me woodcraft, teach me how to get along in the jungle, uh, in the forest, the tropical forest. And I'm sure that I've forgotten quite a bit, but there are a few things that come back to me. Like one thing was they taught me never step over a log or a root of a tree. The general rule was step up onto the log and then look down and slightly under. Never put your foot somewhere where you don't know what you're putting it onto because there might be a snake there. And another lesson which I learned and I don't remember how much this was from them and how much this was just me learning it painfully. Was never touch something in the forest without seeing what you're touching, because you remember those poisonous caterpillars. They had the long, thin, delicate spines that could just your arm would swell up and your your lymph nodes would ache like crazy. I encountered <laughs> I encountered one of those once and. Learn to be more careful. Learn to be more rigorous about it. I learned a painful lesson. And they also taught me other things, like, for instance, about uh, wild boars. And I don't remember any specific stuff. I got treed by a wild boar with my brother Paul once. But then another one that they taught me was in the forest there, there are these very, very small antelopes. that I, I think the English name is Dick Dick, D-I-K dash D-I-K, Dick. And we call them borokos. And they said, be very careful moving through the forest. You don't just approach a low-hanging bush as if you have nothing to be concerned about. Because they said those antelope will hide under those bushes. And their basic game plan is to try to not be noticed. But if they think you're getting too close to them, they will either run or fight. And if they decide to fight... They can kick you. Their, their hooves are tiny and very sharp. They will kick you, and their kick will hit right up to your abdomen, and it can puncture your abdomen, and you can die a painful death from that. I actually uh, broke that rule. We, we were up near the escarpment, and there was a big rocky meadow where the trees wouldn't grow well because of that volcanic rock, and I saw an da out in there. And was looking for a, a place where i could get a clear shot at it there was fairly tall grass growing out there and i forgot about paying attention to what might be a danger to me and i went too close to a bush and there was a dictic, umbilical underneath that bush and all of a sudden there was this burst of sound right by my feet and i'm very grateful that it took off instead of kicking me but Again, that was a reminder that I needed to get more rigorous about how I conducted myself.
0: Dan weighs in with a few points on this same topic.
2: Another thing you learn from hunters is just how to be really quiet. Oh, not just that, observant. I think those of us who hunted, like you, other people who hunted, we notice, we know our surroundings. Like you walk into a any place... And I'm noticing what's going on over to the right of me. I'm noticing what's going on behind me. I'm very observant about what people are doing around me. And uh, that's something I learned from hunting, being observant, you know, and uh, obviously some of the really good hunters are trackers too, phenomenal trackers that can see things that you never see and takes years of practice to learn about, you know. But you learn a lot from hunters, they tell stories and uh, as you're going along and then they Oh, they also showed you things you can eat and things you can't eat. And they showed you a vine, you cut the vine and it's good water. Then they showed you another vine that looks the same to me, and you cut that, if you can drink that, it'll kill you, you know? And then they'll show you a little leaf, and they use that for their poison arrows. Some of those old hunters knew all that medicinal stuff because they had grown up during the age where they had to go to their Gaza camps, their initiation rites. And they would be out there in their little Gaza camp for a whole year and the elders would teach them all about, you know, this is good for snake bite, this is good for diarrhea, this is good for constipation, this is good for this, this is good for that, that's good for a headache, and then they would also show them, you know, teach them how to hunt, they'd leave them out of the jungle all night by themselves, and they had to walk back, you know, naked, there's nothing, just leave them out, there coldly naked, and there's mosquitoes, and I mean, they taught them how to live through tough times, and they all had to survive because if you didn't, you lost face with your friends, with your peers. And so you, you'd take those Mbaka, those old Mbaka guys, they were tough, really, really tough people and uh, smart. They had a lot of, you know, they couldn't pass an algebra test probably, but they were smarter than me in a lot of other areas, you know. So,
0: <laughs> Bob Woodman shares about the forest knowledge he learned from Tombolet, one of the legendary hunters in our area.
3: Monkeys were hard to get, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about Tumbalay was how he could be stealthy. One time, we were walking in the forest, and we were off a path and leaves, and he, he said, follow my footsteps like you're my child. So he would put his feet down into the leaves, toe first, and lower his feet, and I would step in his footsteps. And we actually wound up coming up underneath a pack of monkeys, which was really rare. And I remember admiring him greatly for that. Um, He also taught me how to walk in the stream without lifting my feet above the water. So the water wouldn't drip and you wouldn't go, but you would be stealthy, you know, when you went through the forest. So a lot of successful monkey hunting was stealth.
0: The other big benefit as a kid hunting in Africa Was the relationship one got to develop with your hunting companion?
1: That was my main way of getting to know the forest and the land in general. In the forest in particular, I just loved the forest. I really, really loved the forest. That was a huge thing, too, because if I didn't have that to do there, I didn't really have any good means of interacting with it. With Nabana especially, that's where our friendship really, really grew. Because there would be those times during the hunt, like when we were on our way home or something, there would be times where we weren't concerned about being quiet. And then we would just talk. And it turned out that we had a great connection with our personalities. And we were both devout Christians. And we would talk about spiritual things and about life in general, all sorts of things. And it was just wonderful. And I wouldn't have had that with him any other way that I can think of. Things one is you just brought out another dimension, which is that hunting was one of my chief ways of getting to know African guys better.
0: One of the legendary hunters that Dan, Bob, John, and I got to hunt with was Tombale. This guy was probably five foot four, 160 pounds, pure muscle. He had thighs like tree trunks and a solid upper body, and was really strong. He was a hunter. He was a real hunter. He hunted for a living, and he also provided food for his family. And he was married to the best cook ever. There was nothing like shooting a monkey or guinea hen or some other bird and having a meal prepared by his wife and sharing it with Tombele at his hut. John shares about a special hunt and experience that I feel captures what hunting meant to me and to all of my guests on this episode, I hope you can understand the various dimensions of hunting, friendship, adventure, and nature in this story.
1: So this would be early 1974, and us senior guys, or most of us, I think all of us, went um, night hunting out at Kanana. And we had Tomole Mathieu, the great hunter, who I know you know better than I do. We had him with us. And we went out there, we got stuck on the side of the hill trying to drive through the Sobe where there were some some outcrops of rocks there. And so we spent until nearly midnight getting the truck back off the rocks. It was hung up on the engine or differential. Once we finally got that off, Paul divided us up into groups of two to go hunting because he was sort of in charge of this trip. And to my utter amazement and everlasting gratitude. He assigned me to go with Tomboulet. My jaw practically dropped open because I didn't expect this. And I had, thanks to Bob Widman, I had a 22 rifle. I don't remember if Tombolet had a shotgun, but I assume he did. And we were just going out to see what we could see. And that was one of the most special nights of my life. But we walked just a few yards and I saw Nda in the sword grass. That's a small antelope. The Nda is the Mbaka name for it. I don't know the English name. It's like a small American deer. And it was so close that the parallax, I had a scope on the rifle. It was excellent light gathering, the four power scope. And I shot it, but the shot went high. But because of how I was aiming and where it was standing, the shot went directly through the the top of its spine and uh, killed it right off. And that was nice. I was glad for a merciful kill. So we just turned right around and did the basic butchering in terms of removing the intestinal tract and so on right then. And then we went on. And I did, I would just want to tell this part. And we just walked all night, Tombolet and I. And we went out on these long hills there. And I remember stopping in the moonlight uh because there was moonlight in an area big, it was a huge area that a grass fire had come through and we stopped on the side of one of those big ant hills, probably about 10 feet tall, we're sitting on the side of it, termite hills, in the moonlight. And I remember looking out across that landscape, across those long, big hills, with the palm trees way off, a few solitary palm trees in the moonlight, and forest maybe in the valley somewhere, and thinking to myself, I want to remember, and I intend to do my best to remember this moment for the rest of my life, as long as my brain works, because I'm here with a great hunter, a truly great hunter. This guy, I think, is in a category similar to Daniel Boone, and I get to hunt with him tonight, and even talking about it now, I get a little choked up about it, and so I'm supremely grateful for that. Hunting
0: in Congo meant adventure, friendship, challenges, danger, food, and was a key part of one's rite of passage as a boy growing up. My experiences have given me a better appreciation of nature, of the animal kingdom, and better situational awareness. It's also provided me with great memories and wonderful friendships. So while this episode touched on my journey of hunting and shared some stories from various people... The good news is that this is just the first episode on hunting in Congo. The next episode will be a compilation of hunting stories from my guest on this episode, as well as a few others. These stories are amazing, fraught with danger, adventure, hippo attacks, being gored by a wounded buffalo, coming across an eagle so big it had captured and was eating a monkey, mysterious and mythical forest creatures, and much, much more. Thanks to Dan Norrin, John Lundquist, Bob Widman, and Peter Eels, excellent hunters in their own right in Congo. More of their hunting stories will be in the next episode on Hunting in Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kid's life stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.